Well, good morning. My name is John. If I haven't met you, I have the joy and privilege of being one of the pastors here as well uh, with uh, my wife Sarah and Mitch, and a uh, big welcome to you. Um, we're starting a new six-week series today, uh, and a, it's a practice, really, that we're going to do together called Community Hermeneutic. Now, for most of us, this phrase is probably completely new. It's probably something that you've never heard of before, and that's totally fine. We're going to be learning what it is in the next six weeks. Um, and before I get to the definition of what we're talking about today and in this series, I want to give you a little bit of an idea of why we're doing this, set up a little bit of, of context for us. So this community, uh, this church, Reality Church, has been around for about 15 years. And here you can see this is a picture of not the original gathering, but they, we used to gather across at Dickens School. And so this is the group of people that uh, gathered together in the early 2000s. It looks like it was like maybe... 1455 or something like that. I don't know why they took a black and white photo, but it was only just a few few years ago uh, that we had it. And and there's four core things that we we've always been about. This this church community has been about, and that's Jesus. That we want Him to be the center of the community. The second is that community or church is family. That it's a community church that we have here. The third thing is that we're a people that are for the city. That we want to serve the city. That we want to love the city. And then finally, that we want to grow. And we want to grow as individuals uh, in, in Jesus, but also we want to see people, our friends and other people in the city, come to know Jesus. So those four things have always been true uh, of the community. But about five years ago, a bunch of things changed in our community. First, the founding pastor uh, stepped down. So you can see him. He's right in the middle, uh, kind of off to the left. His family comprises about half of this photo. They have six kids. And uh, so he stepped down uh, from pastoring after about ten years. And then uh, three years ago, I became the pastor at the church. So our family has been here for about 10 years. Um, but I became the pastor. And then we had this, uh, this small event called the Global Pandemic. You may have heard of it. That happened a couple years ago. That changed our community quite drastically. And then just as the pandemic was uh, or not ending, but as we were able to start gathering and meet once again, this building about a year ago flooded. And then when they, cut, they were cutting out the... Uh, the drywall downstairs, they cut into asbestos, and it blew all over the building. And so it took about a year. All of you are like, oh, uh, what are we breathing in right now? It took about a year. They painstakingly like washed and cleaned everything. And uh, we got rid of all of our chairs. That's how we have these beautiful office chairs in front of you, is because we had to get some loaner chairs. And so um, because of all of these different things, we, we see ourselves now in a, in a new stage of our church. Basically, I'd say it's almost like we're restarting, we're reforming once again. We've got a lot of new people. Like, none of us were in that picture, myself included. The last person who was in that picture left last summer. And we're in a new season of, of being the church. And so we want to take those four values that I talked about, and we want to ask, how is God leading us to keep those values but to lean into them maybe in new and different ways in this, in this new season. And one of the shifts that our leadership feels that God is calling us to in this, in this season is to become or move from being a bounded set community to a centered set community, to move from being a bounded to a centered set community. Now, some of you are sick and tired of me talking about this because I've spent about the last eight months talking about this. But if you're new, let me give you just two minutes really quickly on what this means. Every community uh, organizes themselves in a certain way. They show who's in the community and who's outside of the community. And one of the ways of doing that is by creating a boundary. So you can see it's kind of like this thick blue line here. And so Christian communities do this by generally in two ways. They emphasize beliefs, what you believe that puts you in or out, or what you practice, what you've done. 
And so uh, let me, uh, that, that's a bounded set community. The alternative um, is organizing is not by boundaries, but by what stands at the center and which direction that you're moving. So there are two different ways of, of organizing. Let me give you a quick example that might flush this out a little bit more. So many churches make baptism a boundary. So they say the people that are inside this community, the people that are Christians, are people who are baptized. And the people who are outside are people who are not. Now, I think baptism is a really super important practice. It's one of those things that the Bible talks about consistently and characterizes the people of God. So I think it's very, very important. But I don't think treating it like a boundary is the best way of looking at baptism. And let let me tell you why. Sometimes when I chat with people, they inadvertently find out that I'm a pastor. I try not to tell people right away. It kind of closes off conversations. But sometimes, by hook or by crook, they find out that I'm a pastor. And what some people will say is like, oh, yeah, I was baptized as a baby. Or I was baptized when I was 15. Or I was baptized when I was 45. And what they're often trying to say to me is like, I get it. We're on the same team. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't try to convert me. I'm good. And it's almost like people, if they found out that I was a dietitian, and them saying to me, don't worry. I went on a diet for a month 10 years ago. You don't, don't worry about me. We're on the same page. That's kind of like the feeling, because baptism may or may not have absolutely any correlation to what I'm most interested in as a pastor, which is like, what's going on in your life right now? That's great. And our histories make us. So it's really important if that was part of your story. But I'm much more concerned with, like, right now, is Jesus at the center of your life? That's what this, this other uh, image shows here. What's at the center of your life? What's the most weighty thing in your life now? And which direction are you headed? And so you can be really, really far, like this guy on the right who's waving in the red shirt. You could be really far. You could have just wandered in here today. You could have no Christian background. You could be not baptized. You could be, have no clue what baptism even is. But you're here because you're saying yes to something God is doing in your life. Or you could be really, really close, like this woman with her legs crossed in the middle. And you could have been in church your whole life. You could have been baptized six times. I don't know. But your direction is moving away from God. And so a center to community just focuses on, on different things. What Jesus at the center, and what's the next step he's inviting you into. And so a uh, bounded set uh, is concerned with what you agree to mentally and what you have done in the past, but a center set is, is concerned with who's at the center and what you're doing now. What Are you saying yes to the invitations of God in your life right now? And so um, we want to move from being a bounded set community to a centered set community, which is not saying, again, that we get rid of everything that we've done. Baptism is and always will be important to us, but I'd rather hold it in a centered set way than a bounded set way. So why do I mention all of this? Well, one of the things that we've held as a boundary in this community, and in fact in many church communities, is the, the belief and practice around gender and leadership. The belief and practice around gender and leadership. Now, um, you may say, again, I don't, I don't know anything about this. What is, the, what is the issue with gender and leadership? Well, very briefly, and we'll talk about this a lot more in the next six weeks, there's kind of two camps of people uh, when it comes to gender and leadership in the church. One group is Christians who think that the Bible teaches that both men and women can hold all leadership positions within the church. That's a group that's called egalitarian, generally speaking. The other group of of people think that the Bible says that there are some leadership positions in the church that only men can hold. And this is called a complementarian position. And there are, right now, in this group of people, I can tell you as the pastor, and there have always been, even from that group of people in black and white up there from the 1500s, okay, There always have been differing opinions within this community, and there are right now. 
But we are founded and practiced various types of complementarianism in this community. But in this season of the church, our leadership wants to re-ask this question, how do we understand this? What does God's word say about this? How do we then practice it? And how do we change how we hold our belief on this? Regardless of, of how we come out of this process, can we change how we hold that belief? Moving from a bounded to a centered set community. And we want to do it with you. We want to do it in this process that's called community hermeneutic. Now, for some of you, you uh, are very, this makes you very excited. I can see there's some people, even before I started, that don't usually have pens and paper out. And they're like, let's get going here, okay? And maybe you're just a person who likes to debate, okay? Or maybe you're very passionate about this issue. Or there's some of the rest of us, when I start to mention that this is what you're doing, and your sphincter is just like titans. I don't know... Uh, I just gave you a visual with my hands. I don't know why I did that, okay? Uh, but uh, both hands in the pocket. This is, uh, um, but you just get that feeling, and, you, and there's more of, of a fear going on inside of you, of like, oh, no, what's going to happen in this moment? And there's lots of really good reasons for this. This has and continues to be a divisive issue in the church. There's, there's some, and this is one of them. Um, it's a sensitive issue. For some of us, this will touch on parts of our story that involve deep hurt for us or deep hurt of those around us. Or maybe it touches on your identity as a person. Or maybe it touches on the way that you've seen Christianity. I've seen myself on the inside group, and I've, I've known I'm okay because those other people that I disagree with them, they're on the other side of the debate. And so this is a really important and difficult issue, but it's also an issue that you can't fence it on as a church, actually. There's some issues you can just be like, well, we have a diversity and it doesn't really matter. But this is one that you, you, you can't because you have to practice one way or the other. And so what I want to do today is I want to ask this question as I set this up. Does the Bible have anything to say to us as we enter into this process? It's just an introduction today. We'll get lots more, and there may be a lot of questions. And I'm very happy to uh, chat with you more about questions that you have, but this is a six-week process, and I'll outline it at the end. But today, just look at a little bit of an introduction. Does the Bible actually say anything to us as we enter into this process? And can we, my hope and my prayer, and our hope and our prayer as we, we have decided to do this, is can we actually come out as a group of people that's less uh, divided, that's more united, that's more centered on Jesus, even though we will still have disagreements at the end. This isn't about everybody agreeing on everything. But can we come out as a more united, centered people? So I think it does. Let's look at this passage from Romans 12 together. Paul writes, Therefore, brothers and sisters... In view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. This is God's word. There's loads that we could talk about here, and I've preached on this passage before, but this morning I want to just pull out four things from this passage that that I want to guide us. They're invitations to guide us into this next season that we are going into. So the first thing that I want to point out is the word that stands out most to me in this season as I've reread this passage. And it's this word, discern. The word, discern. Paul says, you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. There's an invitation there for us. And this word, discern, can be translated a lot of different ways. It can be translated as discern, which kind of gives more of a subjective idea that might make some of us 
nervous. It can also be test and approve. That's another way that you can translate this, which kind of gives this idea of a more scientific process or there is a right or a wrong, or there's a hypothesis that we're going to put out into the world. Uh, it can also be translated as recognize, which means that there's something out there for us to kind of recognize, to learn, and to lean into. Uh, the fourth way it can be translated is learn, that word. That there's something for us to grow. It's a process that we go in together. And then finally, it can be translated some ways, decide. That there is a decision to be made at the end. So if we're going to enter this process well, I think one of the first things we need to see is that there's actually an invitation here for us. A biblical invitation for us to discern. And accept that that's actually part of what it means to be the community of God. That we're a discerning community. And it always has been. Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago. That we have to discern how to live as the people of God in that age. And it's part of what it means to be the church today. And that may rub some of us the wrong way. Because some of us have a more scientific view of God's will. So we want to take the, the human element as much as we can out of any decision that we're trying to make. Some of us would just prefer that the decision, any kind of decision or discernment that we have to make is really, really simple. And so you might say, be sitting in your seat today and say, like, I just want you to just tell me. Tell me what we believe, and, and I don't want to have to do any work of discernment. Or you might say, I just don't have the time or, or mental energy to put into this, you know, this discernment at this point in time. Some of us also want to just, you know, focus on our own truth. We don't, we don't, we don't mind discerning, but we don't like doing it with other people, because other people suck, kind of, right? <laughs> and, like, you may feel that way, where you're like, ah, these people. Or you might think, I just met these nice people. I don't want to get into this, like, you know, fractious debate with, with any of them. Can't we just keep it surface? Can't we just keep it nice? But Paul is saying in this passage that discerning is part of the Christian life. It's part of what the community of faith must do to be faithful at any time. In fact, I might say it's the goal, the way that he sets it up in the passage, it's the goal of, of the Christian life. That we learn together how to discern, how to be faithful in this moment in time. So, what do we need to discern? There's three things in this passage that Paul talks about. So let's look at them together. So he starts by saying, therefore. Paul says, therefore. That's how this passage begins. And the classic trope in Bible reading is, if you see a therefore, you're supposed to ask what it's? Therefore. Therefore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good job. Um, so there's an invitation here to, to look at what Paul has already said. This is chapter 12. He's gone on for 11 chapters. And most theologians would say that Paul has spent the first 11 chapters rehearsing the story of the Bible. Rehearsing God's story. And so he's telling the church, the Roman church, to familiarize and re-familiarize themselves with this story again and again. And so if we want to be a discerning community, we have to be a group of people that are seeping and marinating and familiar with the story of God. How has God acted in the past? What has he told communities to do? And that's going to lead and guide us into the future. And Paul makes a really important qualifier here. He says, therefore, in view of the mercies of God, in view of the mercies of God. And so he's saying God has acted in many ways in the past. He's given us mercy upon mercy, whether you're a Christian or not. But in, in these last days, he's acted in, a, in one specific way, and then that's in the person of Jesus. And that's who Paul focuses on for the first 11 chapters. That Jesus is the center of the story. As he says in the Gospels, all the stories in the scripture lead to him. And so... Jesus stands at the center, and we have to learn the story of God. So we do it like this. If you want to go to the next slide, Joel. So scripture is important, but it, it doesn't stand in the center. We look at it through the person and work of Jesus. We don't read the scripture as flat. Now, you may notice that there's three circles in this diagram. 
and I've only mentioned one of them. And for some of us, this question is pinging in the back of our minds. Like, isn't Scripture just enough? Like, isn't that all we need? Why do we have to have more than that? Shouldn't we just go to it, find out what to believe, and then kind of move on? And I love the heart behind this question, because it's, it's saying two things. The first is saying like, that we want God's story to be central in our community. And the second thing it's saying is that we want God's story to be authoritative in our community. We want God to be able to tell us, if we're going to the left, we want him to be able to correct us and say that we should go to the right instead. And I want to be very clear and say that those are two things that I value as well. That God's story is central and that God has authority, that he can correct us, that he can guide us. But there's also a problematic assumption behind that kind of a question. And and it's the assumption of what's called biblicism. Biblicism. Let me describe biblicism uh, by using Rachel Held Evans' words. She says this, Biblicism is perhaps best reflected in the old adage, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It's present whenever we turn the Bible into an adjective and stick it in front of another loaded word like manhood, womanhood, economics, politics, to imply that the Bible has a single cohesive position on each of these topics that should be perfectly clear to anyone who reads the text. So I want to be clear about what she's saying here. This is an excellent quote. She is not saying that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about, for example, economics or gender. It does. And when it does, we need to listen. We need to lean in and listen. But the the problem is that biblicism assumes that the Bible speaks univocally and clearly on any given subject, on every subject. And that anyone who reads the Bible with a sound mind and Jesus in their heart and clean underwear will come to exactly the same point. That we'll all see it, which is the way that I see it. If you just read clearly and you just love Jesus and you're open-hearted enough, you would come to the same conclusion that I do about any topic. And that's how we create bounded set communities. Is because we, this, is, this assumption is humming in the background. She continues, We encounter biblicism when Christians on one side of a debate accuse those on the other side by, of picking and choosing which passages of the Bible they take seriously, when the reality is that we're all selective in our interpretation and application of, of Scripture. Again, I want to be very clear. She's not saying scripture is the problem here. She's not down on the story of God. She's saying the problem is with us. The problem is the way that we approach and interpret and apply scripture, which is what the word hermeneutics means. How we interpret and apply scripture. So Rachel Held Evans is saying we have a hermeneutical problem. And again, as an Anabaptist person, as, uh, what we do is we put Jesus in the center. So it's true, I don't give equal weight to every part of the scripture, but I I look at it through the life and teaching of Jesus, which is what I think scripture teaches. Now, this is a really excellent quote, and I I quite like Rachel Held Evans, which is very different than saying I agree with everything she says. I absolutely do not. And very unfortunately, she passed away a few years ago, and I think we as Christians are... uh, We are experiencing a loss because of her voice. She had a very important voice. Again, which is not to say I agree with everything that she says. But for some of you, uh, if I put her up on the screen, um, she represents something that you really don't like, which is liberal Christianity. And uh, so let me give you another quote that says exactly the same thing, but is from a much more conservative place. It's from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says this, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all just basically saying in a much shorter, 
and direct way what Rachel Held Evans is saying. So there are not, not everything is clear or plain to everyone. But, it continues, those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other, that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto sufficient understanding of them. A great quote, maybe from, you know, the 1500s, when that black and white picture was taken. It's kind of some old language. The point is this saying that there are some things that are not clear, but the things in scripture that are, they're clear to, to should be clear to anyone, and they're central. Those are the things that we should make central about us, and that's what we're saying. In a centered set community, they're the things about Jesus, that he is the clear center of our church family. So biblicism values God's word, and it wants to make it key and authoritative, but what it does is it moves scripture into the center place, which is not what we're willing to do. Instead, for us, Jesus stands at the center place, and we want to focus on him, and, and we, we're going to go to the scriptures. We'll spend two weeks doing that. But the scriptures for us are centered on the person of Jesus. We read through him. So we need God's story. Paul is clear about that, and I want to be clear about that too. We need God's story here. But there's more. What, if we want to discern God's good and pleasing will, Paul says we also need to not be conformed to this age. Do not be conformed to this age. And Paul here is basically saying four different things. The first is that we live in a specific place in a specific time. For his initial audience, it's, it's Rome. And for us, it's modern-day Vancouver. So there's some similarities between those places, but there's also quite a few differences. But we all live in a specific place and a specific time. The second is that that time and that moment that we live in has a very formative effect on us. It forms us. It shapes us as people. And it causes us, one of the ways I like to think about this, is it causes us to believe that certain things are just obvious. They're obvious. They should be obvious to everybody and obvious to everyone of all time. So, let me give you an example that's pertinent to what we're talking about. If you went to first century Rome and you asked the people, any person, are men and women equal? They'd be like, no, of course not. Men are better than women. It's just obvious. It's just obvious. You, you wouldn't think differently. Fast forward to today. If I go and ask somebody on the street, are men and women equal? People in Vancouver will say, of course it's just obvious, right? There's no reasoning to get there. They're just very different places. All of our places that we live in and the times that we inhabit have a formative effect on us. So these things are just obvious to us. And we can't escape this. That's number three. We can't escape that these things are obvious, that we're formed by our culture and our moment, that our family history, our cultural background, our level of economic privilege, the movies that we stream, the subreddits that we're a part of, all of these things are part of the age. All of them have a formative effect on us. Who you read, who you don't read. If you like Rachel Held Evans and don't like the Westminster Confession of Faith or vice versa, all of these things have a formative effect on us. And then finally, a Christian is someone who lives in the now, but tries to take the story of Jesus and put it in the central place of their lives. That's the central question of how to be faithful in this time and place. And that's the idea behind the word discern, or maybe the idea behind the word test. It's asking, how can we be genuine and not fake or false in this moment of time? How can I be a faithful Christian? How can we be a faithful church here in this now? And that's what we're doing all the time. All of us, whether we know it or not, is we're identifying the moment that we're in, and we're trying to be aware of its formative effects on us, and we're saying, as, as followers of Jesus, what do we need to reject? 
What can we accept, and how do we live as faithful people today? Now, this might be kind of theoretical, so let me just give you two examples of of what this looks like in a very practical way. The first one, I think, is weird, but it's a good one. Um, So, for this series, I've done a lot of reading, and one of the books that I've read is called Biblical Interpretation in the Anabaptist Tradition. It is probably as boring as it sounds to you. It's quite enthralling to me. There's no e-book. That's the level that this book is at, and I have the physical copy. So I'm reading through this book, and uh, every once in a while, it, will just, it just casually starts to mention that Mennonite people, Old Order Mennonites, you might know them, or Hutterites or Amish people, dress differently. So it'll, just, it'll casually be talking about something, and then it'll just be like, like the Mennonite, Old Order Mennonite clothing. So by the third or fourth time it mentions this, my interest is piqued. So I start looking through the footnotes and Googling uh, things like, why do Mennonites dress like that? And uh, if you don't know, this is kind of how some uh, Amish or Mennonite people... So Anabaptist is like a big umbrella term and includes some Amish people uh, or Hutterite people or Old Order Mennonites. So they dress like this. So I'm like intrigued by why this happens. Um, So there's lots of reasons why. I know you're very curious now, just like I was. Let me just give you three that pertain to this conversation, why they dress like this. The first reason is because they understood that the world that they were living in encouraged people to platform themselves, to put themselves at the center, to say that my life matters. And, and, and one of the ways you can do that is by what you wear, by wearing something that stands out from other people. In, in our world today, we have a word for that, basic, Right? If you dress in a way that doesn't stand out, you're basic. You're basic white girl, basic Asian, whatever it is, right? And and so the Anabaptist people recognized that this was part of the momentum of the world that they lived in. But as they read the story of Jesus, they said, oh, but that shouldn't characterize us as followers of Jesus. Because I don't need to stand out. My identity and my value comes from being in the family of God. So I'm okay. I don't need to stand out in any way. In fact, I don't want to get the focus. I want Jesus to get the focus. It doesn't need to be on me. And so they tried to make their clothing very modest. You know, they succeeded, in my opinion. (laughs) They also saw that our world was really built on accumulation, that I know that I'm okay, that I'm someone, because I've got a lot of stuff, and I show that off in different ways. One of the ways, again, that people do that is by what they wear how much I wear, what the brands that I have, and what that says about me, that I'm doing well in life, that I'm a certain kind of person. But they saw in the story of Jesus that following Jesus actually should encourage us to have a simple life and a generous life. And so they wanted to live simply and generously. And so their clothing is simple. They achieved it, in my opinion. And then they also saw that the the culture around them spend a lot of time and money worrying about what they wear, which really gives an orientation to time to being right now, that the only moment that I really have is right now and what people think of me. That's the most important thing. But they said, as they read God's story, that actually my orientation as a follower of Jesus is not about now. I live here and now, but my orientation is this hope that I have, passed to Jesus, the hope of the new Jerusalem that we talked about last week. One author I read said it this way, we're here, but I'm just here on a temporary tour of duty. My home is in heaven. I'm part of the kingdom of God. And so their clothes are supposed to set them apart and say, I am not a person whose identity is in the here and the now. So these are three reasons. And so here's me, Thursday afternoon in a sweatsuit, upstairs in my office, 
Googling phrases like, why do Mennonites dress like that? And as I read through these things, I'm just having this deep moment of resonance. Because I want my life to count. I want my life to point to a different story. I want to live simply so that I can be generous. I want all these different things. And so I'm having basically this moment of worship, actually, in reading about these clothes. Because I want all that to be true of my life, too. And so I was just deeply moved and deeply challenged and moved into a time of deep prayer uh, over this. And like asking God, could you make my life count in this way? Could I have that level of discernment? Could we have that level of discernment as a group of people? Now, do I think that everyone everywhere at all times should dress like this? No. It'd be kind of awkward if I was like, so I went on Amazon and I bought us all clothes. And I just, that's the rest of the service. I just lined up a bunch of boxes and I was like, here you go. These are your clothes now. Okay? I don't think that. Um, I don't think that that's the answer. That's what they did, but I don't know that that's the calling for us, okay? If you think differently, we'll chat after the service. But we should still discern. There's still this invitation, and I'm moved by their level of discernment. Do you understand? That all of us can be challenged, even if we don't end up dressing like this. That we can be challenged by that level of discernment. Let me just give you one more uh, example from one of my favorite authors. His name's James K.A. Smith. He's uh, born in Canada, but he lives and works in America. And his book, How to Inhabit Time, which this quote is from, is one of my favorite books of the last year. And this is an example, again, of, of not identifying the moment that we live in well. He says, In the wake of systemic police brutality disproportionately inflicted on black Americans, a movement swelled to rightly assert Black Lives Matter. The assertion was necessary because of a distinct and particular history of oppression and exploitation, a history that was far from past. In the face of this, a number of white Christians were suddenly surprisingly purveyors of a universal human solidarity, and against the supposedly selective or narrow protest that black lives matter, asserted that all lives matter. Apart from the rather selective attention to universal principles, those who asserted that all lives matter took themselves to be articulating an eternal idea an ideal. But the question isn't simply what's true. The question is what needs to be said and done now, in this place and in this moment, given this particular history. To assert that all lives matter as a response to Black Lives Matter is not wrong in principle. It's not a wrong statement, but it's wrong temporally. It fails to recognize that Black Lives Matter is something that has to be said here and now because of a specific contingent history that got us here. The assertion of ideal timeless truth that all lives matter is performatively false in such a situation. It lacks prudence and does not constitute faithful witness here in this now. Our shared history makes all the difference for discerning what faithfulness looks like. Smith is saying that I agree that asserting all lives matter is not untrue. This is a true statement. But people were unaware of the moment that they lived in. They did not discern the time, how to be faithful in the here and now. They're unaware of the stories that shape our lives, the stories that shape our culture, and the story that shapes us. Listen to the final paragraph that he says. A faithful Christian life is always a matter of keeping time with the Spirit, 
But what the Spirit asks of us always reflects history, our own, but also the history of the church and the societies in which we find ourselves. What do we do now is one of the fundamental questions of discipleship. What do we do now is one of the fundamental questions of discipleship. So what do we do now, or what, how do we discern? How do we discern what we are to do now? Well, we need a community of people who are willing to narrate their stories, who are willing to tell their stories, and listen to the stories of other people and the stories of other followers of Jesus. And we're going to talk about this. This is going to be the focus next week. So let me just quickly say this. There's three groups of people that we need to be ready to hear the stories from if we're going to do this. The first is people in the family of God who are different than you. So if you are a man, you specifically need to listen to the stories of women. If you are rich, you specifically need to open yourself up to listen to the stories of those who are poor, those who have a different history than you, those who are in a different relational status. If you're married... Listen to those who are single, for example. Could we need to open ourselves up to the full body of God to listen to the stories and not just pretend that the story revolves around us, but that it's actually the story of Jesus and the story of his family. The second is that we need to listen to the stories of saints from around the world and from different times in history. Saints from around the world and different times in the history. Because our propensity is to get stuck in our moment. Remember where things are just obvious. As the author David Foster Wallace says, things just become water to us. We don't even know them. It's like air. We just breathe it. We don't even notice it. And so we have to listen to the stories of people from different ages and from different places. Um, C.S. Lewis says uh, that the stories of, of history of the church and the story of people from different places are like clean sea breeze that blows through our mind because we're prone to what he calls chronological snobbery. We become snobs. We think we stand at the center of history in this moment and in this time and in this place. And so we need those other stories. That's the second group of people. And the third is the story of Jesus. The problem with telling our stories is that they can very quickly take up the center place in our community. And that's not what we're trying to do. We have to articulate our stories, but we come together around the story of Jesus, the Jesus who came, the Jesus who lived, the Jesus who gave his life and is now reigning and ruling. That's the story we come, and he's the supreme center of our community. So we need the scriptures, and we need to tell our stories. But the final thing Paul tells us is that in order to discern correctly, we need to be open to transformation. He says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And I think when I think about discernment or testing normally, I kind of think of it as a very like objective experience, maybe like a scientist you know, testing a hypothesis or us going to a test where there's right or wrong answers or, you know, if you get together with a friend and you try to make pros and cons lists of things. And those can be really helpful practices. But Paul's vision for discernment is quite different. Discernment in the people of God. He wants us to be able to discern God's will, but he, he says that only comes if we're willing to be transformed. In the, in the order of the sentence, being transformed comes first. And you might say, what am I supposed to be transformed into? Well, Paul says this in verse 1. He says, that your, may your life become a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. And this is not a grab bag of just Christian characteristics. This is pointing to a person. It's pointing to the person of Jesus. And it's saying that no matter who you are in this room, no matter if you follow Jesus or not, there's an invitation for each one of us 
to be transformed, to become like Jesus. That God is not willing to just settle for like a 2.0 version of yourself. You with all your New Year's resolutions, you know, locked and loaded, as great as those may be. But there's actually an, in, an invitation for each of us to transform, to become like the person of Jesus. That's the vision of what it means to be human. And so I think, I think of it like this, what we're doing here in, in kind of two tracks. The first track is what we'll be doing here uh, on Sundays in the next six weeks and what we'll be doing in community groups. So here's the plan that we have for the next six weeks. This week, I'm, I'm introducing the topic. Next week, we'll talk about our stories and the story of Jesus. The two weeks after that, we'll go through uh, the biblical kind of sides on the debate. We'll look at God's word. The week after that, we'll look at the story of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And then the week after that, if there is unity, we'll discern what's the way forward for our community. And these things build on each other. So I really encourage you, if this is your church home, to to make these next six six weeks um, important. Whether you're here in person or if you can't be, that you're listening online. And, the, and we're going to carry the conversations that we have here. Uh, there's going to be a lot of like teaching time into community groups. So if you're not part of a community group and you're part of this church family, I really encourage you to join a community group. Mitch mentioned those. All the information is there online. And so that's one track of things. That's a track that we've planned. This is the plan that we have laid out. But there's a second track that's equally, if not more, important, and that's the track of transformation what God wants to do in each of our lives and in this community as we go through this process together. And I have no plan for that. I can't, believe, I, can't, I can't just say, like, on week two, you're going to have an epiphany. On week three, you're going to break down crying. On week four, you will be a new person. Praise God. Okay? That's the plan. I don't know how that's going to happen. But I do know that God wants us to be transformed. That there's an invitation for each of us to become like Jesus through this process. And so both of those are important. We want to discern which way is the way forward for this community, but I also don't want to miss that God wants to do something in each and every one of our lives and in this community together. So how can we do that? Just three things quickly as we close. An encouragement to each one of us, myself included. If we want to be people who transform, that we start with a heart of humility. We start with a heart of humility, which is the first thing is to come and say, I don't know everything about this topic. And I'll just tell you, as someone who has read possibly more books on this than anyone else in this community, I don't know everything on this topic. And I want all of us to come with that heart of of humility together. Trying to truly, I think one of the ways that comes across is to truly listen to the stories of other people as they tell them. To be open to what other people and what God has to say. So a heart of humility. The second is a heart of obedience. In that boring book that I was talking about earlier, Biblical Interpretation in the Anabaptist Tradition. There's five different things that characterize Anabaptist tradition or interpretation. And, and, and one of the most important is they call it a hermeneutic of obedience. What I read, and that's why you often don't see many academics, at least historically, who are Anabaptists, is because they said the, the place that you read scripture or the point of reading scripture isn't actually academics, it's obedience that I become a person who looks like Jesus, that when I read it and it's clear that I do what it says, even if it means wearing weird clothes, that I follow Jesus. And so I encourage you, one of the, the hearts that we can have if we're going to be open to transformation is a heart that's open to change and to obey and to follow. And part of that means, as much as we want you to share your story, that it's decentering on you and it's centering on, on Jesus and on us. 
What's God calling us to do? And do I have a heart of obedience towards that? And then finally, a heart that's open to transformation is a heart that's open to the agent of transformation, which is the Holy Spirit. That as followers of Jesus, we receive this great gift, God with us, God in us, the Holy Spirit that's directing us, working inside of us, speaking to us, guiding us, correcting us. We be open to the Holy Spirit's voice, both in your life and in community. And that's a way that we can keep Jesus at the center and not just the spirit of this age or our own opinions and beliefs, but actually be open to the process of transformation that God wants to lead us through, through his spirit. Let's pray to close. God, we come before you, and uh, coming before you is a way to be humble. Prayer is a way to be humble, to be recognizing that uh, we need you. And even for me, as even one of the people who has um, been granted leadership in this community, that I need you. And so we come humbly before you and ask for you to transform us, that we would become people who look like Jesus, not only individually, but as a, as a group of people together. And so we ask, uh, by your grace, that you would make that true today, over these six weeks, and uh, for however long this community is around, that we would be a group of people who bends our knee and our hearts and our lives towards you. As we start in this process, we, we just pray, as this diagram is supposed to show, that you would be at the center of this process, but also this place. And so as we come together, um, as we start the community hermeneutic, but also as we come together, as we respond now, we just ask that you would take the weighty center in our community, in each of our lives, in our families, in our homes, but also in this place. And so we, we turn ourselves over to worship you as we sing these words together. May they not just be words that we say, but may they be things that, that transform us, that make your presence palpable with us, that we may worship and glorify and honor you. As we give, as we take communion, as we pray, as we greet one another after the gathering, I pray that these would all be things that speak to your presence in this place. And so we ask now that you would be present with us, and we pray that you would give us eyes and ears to see how you are. In Christ's name, amen.